I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the book of Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, I uh, will take a two-week break between Deuteronomy and Joshua. Next Sunday, I will be back in the pulpit, but in lieu of writing two new sermons during Presbytery Week, I will pull out two sermons from the past. Uh, That's easier said than done, believe it or not. Sometimes going back to those old sermons, you go, wait, I said that? (laughs) Oftentimes it's the experience. I'm going to pull from a little series that I did about five years ago on a series of benedictions and doxologies. Uh, This doxology is taken from Romans 11 in response to a very heavy and weighty theological section and also uh, even as Paul was burdened in Romans 11 seeing that his fellow countrymen, his tribe, the Israelites, had rejected Christ, what God would continue to do with them, and looking forward to a day when God would, in his mystery, and according to his everlasting mercy, bring them back. And in response to all of this, in response to a flood, an overwhelming tide of glorious doctrine related to God himself and his plan, we find this doxology that comes from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, and I would invite you uh, to follow along as I read from those four verses, Romans 11, beginning in verse 33, and I'll read to the end of that chapter. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him? And it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be glory forever. Amen. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's word. Lord, would you give to us listening ears this night? Would you give to me wisdom and unction? As I preach your word, may it be unto the edification of those who are here, who listen and desire to grow in grace. O Lord, might you grant this gift to us, that we would see sin mortified in our flesh, that we would see our hearts moved by your truth, and that we would all together grow in the wisdom and knowledge of you, and that we would succumb and submit to the great Reality that you are a good and sovereign God and all that you have ordained is right so that we can trust you without fear, knowing that you are laying up bright designs. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. I've said already the next two Sundays, I'll be preaching a couple of one-offs. I hear this evening a benediction from Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33. Now, there's three points that I really want to a focus on as we look at this text this evening as it relates to God, the God that we find here, and the people who are called to sing such a doxology. Now, the first point is this. One alone is sovereign. One alone is sovereign. Second, shall you teach the Lord? Question mark. Shall you teach the Lord? And then thirdly, Worship and obedience from a place 
of trust. Worship and obedience from a place of trust. Let's look at this first point this evening. One alone is sovereign. Now, we have seen this argument put forth by Paul for quite a number of verses. In fact, it really begins in chapter 8, in which we are told by Paul that there is a a manner in which God directs the lives of his people in order to bring about from suffering great glory. This is due to his love that never fails. We then in nine, chapter 9, Romans 9, and every good Presbyterian, Reformed Presbyterian knows this passage. It's the passage that really fleshes out the working of the doctrine of election and how we are to respond to it. And it sort of captures the sentiment that we find in the book of Job. Where when Job comes to God and he says, why have you made this the design? Why have you designed my life in this way? And so God essentially lays it on Job, not an answer as to why, but that God has designs that are connected to his glory and his power to the point that Job ultimately says, I have no no response to this, no response whatsoever. And Job says, I put my hand over my mouth. Which is actually quite a sanctified response to the wisdom of God in beholding the glory and beauty of God. And then Paul talks about Israel needing to believe upon Christ. They're rejecting Christ. Why that happened, of course, connects to Romans 9. It is part of the plan of God. But this rejection, Paul says in Romans 11, is not final. That there will come a day when the Jews will embrace Christ. How many? We do not know. Which ones? We do not know. When? We do not know. But there will come a time when God will restore to himself many of those Old Testament people of God. And then at the end of this section, prior to sort of a practical application of all of these things is this doxology which is why i've entitled the sermon tonight doxology is practicum a practicum is just teaching for a purpose teaching you how to live it is a very a pastoral exercise in fact that's what preaching is it is taking the wisdom and the treasure of the knowledge of god and endeavoring to have something to say about it so that you who are here may hear it and do as you have been told as you have been encouraged, instructed. Now, Paul reflects upon this divine mystery and this mystery revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And despite the good news and the bad news, and for him the sorrow of seeing his um, tribesmen reject Christ, his, his kinsmen, the Jews, the Israelites, Christ has still come. And all of this remains yet a mystery. And this doxology is not born out of clearing up all of the mystery, but in the midst of continued mystery. It is a doxology born not of understanding things as God does, but knowing God who understands all things. It is a reflection upon one mystery revealed, but many mysteries that remain. And in fact, this is the context out of which all of our doxology comes and is offered by us unto the Lord. We sing in the face of uncertainty to a God to whom all things are certain. 
God is good while all the world is wicked. God is wise while all the world exhibits folly. And so Paul reflects in this first stanza, this first line. Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. His wisdom and knowledge are deep. They are infinitely deep. And not only are they deep, his wisdom and knowledge, but they are unsearchable by us. There is a depth and quality of the knowledge and wisdom of God that we can never search out. Children, I want you to listen. There are times in your life with your parents when there is a hard decision and your father and your mother have to make a decision and you do not understand that decision and your parents are struggling to relate to you why they decided what they did. Or rather, they are struggling to express to you why that decision in terms that you understand. And so ultimately they settle upon this. You're just going to have to trust me. That there is a level of wisdom and knowledge that children do not possess that adults do. But it is a whole other thing to say that there is a depth of wisdom and knowledge that God possesses that even the wisest of men do not possess. There is a chasm, there is a span, there is a space between the wisdom and knowledge of God and the wisdom and knowledge of man. And we must, as Job did, just say, I'm content not knowing. And I will say this, get used to that. (laughs) And not only in this life, but even the life of the world to come. One day when we are given resurrected bodies, glorified bodies, sinless minds, there will still be a wisdom and a knowledge that God possesses that we as creatures will never possess. And if you are waiting to worship God until you figure out what his plan for your life is, you are committing treason. You are violating the first commandment. Doxology is not born out of clarity as it relates to the purposes of God waiting for him to show you so that then you can begin to sing, but it begins from a place of absolute, unconditional humility and surrender. It's difficult. And so doxology is sung in the face of fear, of anxiety, of questions, of conflict, of debate, In fact, look at the Psalter for a moment. Many of the psalms that are written by the psalmist are from a place of great conflict and anguish of soul. There is a problem, and even there are times in those psalms where the problem is actually not resolved, and yet the psalmist says what? I will worship the name of the Lord. Perhaps we've gotten used to the two-hour time span of um, figuring out the rest of the story, right? There's the, there is the opening of the story. There is Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3. And by the end of that tidy little two-hour film, we have the storyline resolved. And you can walk away from it going, wow, that was a perfect, complete story. Not so with our lives. In fact, many of our lives end, we feel, too early. There was a conflict. There is a moment 
in which we are challenged to trust. But all doxology is ultimately and unavoidably given unto the Lord by those who not being sovereign, who being but creatures, must stand in this place. We have no idea ultimately what God is going to do other than what he's explicitly told us. But the how, the when, many of those things are difficult to find out. I am convinced the more I sing the Psalms, the more I study the book of Revelation, that there will come a time when the church will be greater and more powerful than she is today. How will we get there? Through word, prayer, and sacrament. When will we get there? I have no idea. What will it look like? It's a guess as it relates to those matters, as it relates to the future. And yet, I know this, that throughout the various trials of life, throughout the various scenes as we sung this morning, we are called to sing doxology. We know the one who knows all things. And so all doxology is born from surrender. But there is one thing that we do absolutely know that informs and governs our understanding of the things that we do not. This is what Martin Luther calls the theology of the cross. There are those who are theologians of glory who seek to ponder and pontificate the mysteries that God has not revealed, and that is great folly. This is what he says in the Heidelberg Disputations in April of 1518. But then there are those who are theologians of the cross. And those theologians of the cross, Luther says, are those who understand the way in which God works and the mind of God is revealed ultimately in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as the cross goes, so goes all of God's working among men. This is why we can, in the great face of great tragedy and uncertainty, be confident that God can make something good of it. Because it is at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, where he, apparently weak, a flesh, in agony, hanging with nails driven into his hands and into his feet, was in that moment of great weakness, dismantling the forces of darkness. It is a paradoxical moment of weakness and strength. And so we are to judge the manner of the working of our Lord by the manifestation of Christ suffering yet victorious upon the cross. This is the paradox that fooled the devil. This is the paradox that fooled the white witch and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe that the very instrument by which the lion was killed would give him his power. That the very instrument by which our Messiah was killed would grant to him his power and our opportunity for salvation. So the question is this. Are you going to be the one, in light of God's great providences, Though there is much that you don't know, there is one thing you do know with absolute certainty, and that is God redeems sinners. Shall you approach the throne of God and say, you know, Lord, I'm not sure if I would have done it that way. 
Can you imagine the audacity? And that's the second point. As it relates to this doxology, verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Can you imagine that moment? It may be blasphemous even to imagine for a moment a time where God meets with men and says, would you please help me figure this problem out? In fact, Job 21, Isaiah chapter 40, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, many writers in the course of the scriptures remind us God does not need counselors. And he has not asked us for our opinion. In fact, I imagine if he were to field your opinion and he were to ask you, how would you go? What way would you go? What would you decide? Ultimately, whom would that benefit most? Where do you think the mythology of the genie came from? If we had unlimited power, if only for a short period of time, this is what we're looking for, right? If we could be God, if only for a time, what would we do? How many of you just say, I wish for things just to stay the way they are? <laughs> and so doxology is not just an expression of men coming to terms joyfully with the way things are, but doxology is a, a practicum wherein we see the glory of God and in singing of him, we learn lessons of him. We are transformed by the thing directed to the Lord. That is what this doxology is ultimately doing. It is a letter to the Romans in which Paul is saying in a sort of backhanded way, do not think for a moment that God needs your wisdom. You are not teaching God something. He is teaching you something. And so it puts the parties in their proper place. There is God, the king of heaven and earth, and there is man who sings unto God those things that are worthy of him. And so doxology, in the same way that we are not God's counselors, we are wholly dependent upon his revelation for even knowing what we should say about God in the first place. There is nothing invented or ought to be invented then in Christian piety or worship. If you wish to live a faithful life under the Lord, where ought you begin? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. For in these two commands, all of the law and prophets are summarized. They are contained. It is an expression of righteous, spirit-wrought affection as guarded by the law of God revealed in his word. You don't make it up. Now, oftentimes we want to make it up, right? But this is the heart of rebellion. This is sin. Sin is inventive. Righteousness is what? Received. 
It receives the declarations of God's word regarding himself and what we're to believe about God and what God also requires of us in our lives. And so our worship, our doxology, is responsive. It does not originate with us. For if it were, it would be by very definition heretical. This is what cults are and false religions. They are a rejection of God's word and how he has revealed himself and an adding to, taking away, bringing adjacent to anything or anything that is not the word of God. And so our worship, the content, its manner of expression, all of it is to be guided and guarded and informed by the word of God. Because you are not his teacher. And he has laid it down. And so it is not brought about through invention but revelation. Parents, teach your children the scriptures. Teach them fun songs. Teach them songs written by godly men and women. But teach them the word. Above all, may their mouths and their hearts be filled with the word. And so what are we to give to him? And how can we repay him? I mean, how could I begin to repay even the human people in my life who have deposited such glorious gifts in the few years that I've walked on earth? I think of my parents. I think of my teachers. I think of godly counselors. I could never repay them. How then could I repay God? And so even our doxologies are not acts wherein we arrogate the mercy of God. But what? As expressions of those who have been redeemed from the pit. Not to repay, but to exalt the name of the one who has redeemed us. Hmm. Third point. Ours is to worship from a place of trust. Thus far we have seen already that God alone is sovereign, that his wisdom and knowledge are not like ours, that they are unsearchable. You could spend your entire life seeking to plumb the depths of the riches and knowledge of God and you, you would never find it all out. That God needs no counselor, but his decrees are laid down within the counsel of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in light of these glorious truths, that we are to simply receive the grace of God with gratitude, that ours is then to worship from a place of trust. That this sovereign superintendence for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That there is none like God, like the Father, like the Son, like the Holy Spirit, that there is none like our Lord. And though there have been many, the few thousand years of human history on earth, great men to be sure, great and powerful kings 
and emperors and conquerors, wise men and sages, even righteous judges and rulers, that not a one can compare to the Lord. And from the time of Moses to now, a hundred years is about where we top out. And even in those 120 years, how many of them are actually useful? We've already seen in our own nation how many years we are given to be useful as leaders, right? It's difficult to do it past 75. We've discovered that. (laughs) We lose our minds. And this is no slight on any one individual. We just start to lose our minds. We are frail. We are weak. And even if we are not prone to accidents or do not experience some great tragedy, by about 100 years, our bodies just begin to wear out. And I would say to any of those men, men who put their hope and trust in human strength, are you happy being a God? Are you willing? Are you ready? And usurping the throne from the rightful creator and redeemer to sit upon that throne yourself? And this is the irony of all human men, isn't it? That we are looking for a quick savior, one like ourselves, one fashioned like us. But it is God and God alone who possesses the capacity, the ability, the disposition to rule and reign in righteousness. And so our doxology of God is singular in its focus and its attention. And we do not render to any other what we render unto the Lord. This is the very heart of idolatry. Idolatry is rendering unto something that is of the created realm that which only the creator is to be given. And when we say worship, you may say, I don't worship creation, but you may trust, you may lust, you may desire, you may crave, you may put your strength and trust in what? Princes and chariots. Now, you've not seen too many chariot riders probably traveling through Gaston County. We're talking about human might, expressions of power. It is easy to be enchanted by that, the next great leader. But only God is almighty, and so the mightiest of us, as the psalmist says, is but dust upon the scales. And so again, it brings us back to that point. Ours is to worship from a place of trust. Leaders can be empty cisterns that cannot hold water. We are but dust. And so the Lord says, this is who I am. I am a God of incomparable wisdom and knowledge. My judgments are righteous. You cannot discern them. There is none, the wisest of all men, who can serve as a counselor to the Lord. And there is none who can give back to God the glorious riches that he has given to us. And so what do doxologies do? They place us in a place of great humility. Now there are those on earth who hate that position. And they do seek to rob from God 
that throne. They want to be in control of their own lives. But even they, those little tiny rebels like ants screaming, shaking their little fists, they are but a drop in the bucket, dust on the scales. And at the end of the day, even those who rebel and reject the glory and sovereignty of God are still under the sun. They are still dust. And so the king who is eternal, though having every opportunity to flex his muscle to smite all, shows compassion on many. And so we see even in God's wisdom and sovereignty, as I have said already, his stooping low to sinners like ourselves. We see this in Psalm 113, that though God is transcendent and high above all things, he is also near to those who are broken and needy and hurting. In the cross is that pedestal of God's self-revelation. The story of Christ is tragedy turned comedy. You know the difference between tragedies and comedies? Those are the only two types of stories. All the tragedies of Shakespeare ended in what? Death. And all of his comedies ended in a wedding. You have a sad story or a happy story. The story of Christ is a story of victory and a wedding. It is the destruction of wickedness. And one day you and I will be with Christ in glory around a table called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is why we worship. Because all of God's designs ultimately lead us to the place where you and I, in Christ Jesus, eternally secure, will one day sit and we will sup with him forever. I can guarantee you this. If any, only a few, will ever be invited to great tables. I mean, who would invite us? And in fact, at this rate, we won't be invited to any of the great tables if we keep being faithful to the Lord. <laughs> we'll be rejected by all the great tables. And that's okay. Because Christ has revealed to us the way of salvation. And so what we find is a king of mystery, of a will held back, not revealed to us. Some of it revealed, much of it not and this is the one to whom we pay worship and homage and trust. Because what he has revealed is enough. He has given us his word. In fact, there's a lot here. And most of you probably have not even read all of it. There is enough here. Not only to give us an understanding of what God has done, is doing, and will do, but to confirm to our souls the security of Christ's redeeming work on our behalf. And though he is a king worthy of terror, of awe, of incomprehensibility, he is a God who has revealed himself in this way, that it is enough for life and for godliness. Though he is a king worthy of terror, he grants an opportunity for love and compassion. The mystery of Christ, the sacrifice for sinners. In fact, we sing in the great hymn, And can it be, tis mystery all the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. How do you become a more devoted, faithful, trusting and sincere worshiper 
you learn the doxologies of Scripture that are themselves built upon the rest of the infrastructure, the scaffolding of God's revelation. You must trace the glorious acts of God in history. You must trace the glorious act of God in bringing about your own salvation. You must look forward to the things which God has promised clearly in his word that will come. I do not know when my days will end. I pray it will be long. Maybe I'll get to see great grandbabies. I don't know. Who knows? By God's grace, that will happen. But I do know this. I've read Revelation. I've read the other books of the Bible. I've read Daniel and all of those glimpses into the eternity that is yet to come. And I know this. One day I will sit and sup with Christ. And that is enough for me to sing praises to my God. Let's pray.